Merrily We Roll Along, with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim in a book by George Firth, opened November 16, 1981, at the Alvin Theater. Based on the 1934 play of the same name by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart, the musical retained the essential structure and overall themes of the play while updating it to encompass the period from 1957 to 1976. A storied development and rehearsal process resulted in a disappointing initial run for a production that has become one of the most revived and revised in the Sondheim canon. With us today is multi-award-winning director-choreographer Marsha Milgram-Dodge, whose extensive international theater credits include Gypsy, Forum, and Merrily We Roll Along, as well as on Broadway with The Heidi Chronicles, High Society, and Ragtime, which was nominated for the 2010 Tony and Drama Desk Awards for Best Revival of a Musical. Chris Jones, chief theater critic and cultural columnist for the Chicago Tribune. He also serves as Broadway critic for the New York Daily News, as well as a critic for WBBM-TV Channel 2. Recipient of numerous accolades, including the George G. Nathan Award, is the author of Bigger, Brighter, Louder, 150 Years of Chicago Theater, as well as Rise Up, Broadway and American Society, From Angels in America to Hamilton. And director, actor, and writer Lonnie Price, one of the most accomplished interpreters of the works of Stephen Sondheim, having directed Sweeney Todd, Gypsy, Sunday in the Park with George, Anyone Can Whistle, Passion, and Company, who burst onto the scene creating the role of Charlie Kringus in Merrily We Roll Along, and who also directed the 2015 film documentary Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened, which chronicles that production's journey. Welcome, everyone, to the round table. Thank Hi you. everyone. Hi. So I like to start at the at the beginnings for each of us. When uh, this production came into our lives, uh, one of you, of course, <laughs> I think we all know. But uh, for me personally, it came in the in the mid '80s at a, a small theater here in Chicago called Pegasus Players that was focusing on works of Sondheim. It was a non-equity production. I knew nothing about the show going in except that it was a troubled production. Um, what strikes me now looking back on it was how very quickly productions post-Broadway of this show began happening around the country. That, that as, a, as anything with Sondheim, people immediately wanted to work on it, get their hands on it, see what they can do with it. Um, what for the for for you all? When did uh, Marilee first come into your life? You Marcia? Oh, sure. so I saw the final performance on Broadway hmm. and uh, wept through the whole thing. Uh, I think it's one of the most uh, brilliant Sondheim scores, and I I was troubled by the book, but not by the going backwards. I just didn't. I wanted to tackle it. And I never thought I would until I got the call in 1991 
from Arena Stage, where I had uh, had some success with a production of On the Town. And Doug Wager said to me, we're going to do Merrily We Roll Along next year. And Sondheim's going to be in residence. So I was like, I'm in. And um, that started my relationship more deeply with the show. Mm -hmm. Chris? Uh, you're muted. Sure, you're, He's muted. You're, you're muted. You're muted, Chris. Let me make sure. It's like a thing in any any Zoom event. Someone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, I saw that Pegasus production too. So that I guess I first saw it in the mid '80s too. Um, the one that sticks in my mind as sort of an intriguingly resonant night was this production that was in Highland Park in a, about ten years ago at a little company called the Music Theatre Company where it starred Jessie Mueller about three years before she became Jessie Mueller and everyone else's sensibility. And it was this kind of meta show um, with a bunch of actors who'd been together at Northwestern, I guess, around the turn of the 21st century. And they were sort of um, meditating on that relationship. And that, that was a really fascinating production of it uh, as well. And that one, that one really sticks in my mind because it sort of brings out the whole, um, you know, the whole sort of meta aspect of this show, you know, uh, that I think is sort of interesting. Mm -hmm. Lonnie? Uh, I guess you're getting to me. Uh, what I was uh, thinking about, Chris, was when, um, you know, uh, about 20 years after we did the show, we did a reunion concert of it, which um, with the original cast, which had that kind of meta. We had known each other, obviously, we were those people 20 years later. Um, and so I, I agree that there's a richness that comes with people who have known each other for a long time, which is what the show is essentially about. Um, and, and actually that, that production sort of inspired um, the film that I wound up doing. Gee, it's hard, Michael, to talk about the, the beginning of it. I mean, I, it depends how far you want to go back. I'm, I was in a uh, class with Joanna Merlin, who was a wonderful actress and casting director who cast all of Stephen Howell's shows. And she said, I've got something for you. And uh, she said, you know, they're doing this show and uh, there are kids' parts in it and it's all kids. And Howell's going to do a reading at his office. And as you might know, I worked for Hal years before on Pacific Overtures as an office boy. And so I had known both of them for, you know, since I was 14, it's a long time, uh, even, and I was probably 20 at that point. Um, anyway, so I went in and read, uh, they had given us some sides uh, that, that um, and uh, read in Hal's office and after a page, he said, oh, you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And uh, we wound up and did this uh, reading on the Avita stage of um, to see if, uh, and this is in the film, is to see if kids doing this dialogue would seem arch or weird or, you know, whatever. And um, and it was mostly, it was a profession, Giancarlo Esposito was in it and I was in it and some Jenny Wright, who was sort of a, sort of had sort of professional kid actors and then a lot of Daisy Prince's friends from Dalton. Uh, Jason Alexander was in it though. Um, I don't think Tanya was in it. 
Anyway, it was kind of a mix of, of pros and not because they didn't know how young they wanted to go. And um, so that was my first introduction to it. And at the and at that time, you know, Steve played the score, you know, played you know, <laughs> several of the songs, which was just, you know, ridiculously thrilling, you know, and particularly after Sweeney to hear the primary color, Julie Stein kind of 32 bar, you know, when old friends came, it was just, you know, you thought, oh my God, is this is what he's doing now. You know, it was always, what are they going to do next? And mm -hmm. that it was a kind of throwback to another time in a way. And that uh, just infused with his incredible sensibility. So, I mean, and then the show is, you know, more or less never not been in my life mm -hmm. uh, in some form or other, just um, as terms of, uh, you know, I guess recognition of having been in it and the album, which was, um, uh, you know, thank God the album happened, which it almost didn't. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's gonna be 40 years soon. So it's just been a big chunk of my life has been uh, revol revolves around it and uh, through it. So um, that's, but that was the beginning, beginning was uh, that audition where right. they had, I think Steve had, four songs or something and uh and uh you know and and a and the book and the, the book was done but not all the score was done so that's that's my memory of it yeah to go back to a different component of the beginning when it comes to this particular piece what strikes me um as so interesting is when you read the original play how much of it is very much what they stuck to. And this is something that, that has become part of my conscience in even doing these conversations, is the period of when the natural thing for Sondheim to do with his collaborators was, was frequently to adapt something. We're gonna adapt Christopher Bond's play, we're gonna adapt Romeo and Juliet, we're gonna adapt, and that this, this piece still is from that, that period. Was any of that part of the discussion? Uh, what, did, they, did they bring up any element of that early on, uh, Lonnie, in terms of re its relationship? Or were they just sort of, we have this other thing? Well, I mean, you know, Follies and Company were, were not adaptations of anything. Right. So, um, I, I, I mean, I, they did a lot of adaptations, but not, you know, Night Music was the Bergman movie. So, um, yeah, no, I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't remember any kind of discussions about how faithful they were going to be to it or not, or the jumping off point of, um, you know, and initially this was a show that Hal wanted to do because because he thought it would be great for kids, which is interesting because they never did it with kids again. So, um, you know, I don't think any other production ever used kids again. So it was um, uh, a bit of a, you know, hybrid in some way. But uh, no, I mean, the idea that it wasn't original right. um, is that it, that it wasn't original was not mentioned in any way that I remember, no. Marcia. Mm -hmm. I've done it twice in colleges because after doing it at Arena with Victor Garber, David Garrison, Marin Maisie, Becky Ann Baker, Mary Gordon Murray, and a host of other people in my ensemble that were all A-listers, Tom Hewitt, Ruth got Ruth um William uh what's her uh Ruth, yeah Ruth Williams Williams Williams, Williams. Williams. um anyway uh I did it with students and it's really interesting to go back and work on it with the kids because the the first act obviously is the challenge and the second act is in the pocket 
you know, when they get to opening doors, you're just, all the shackles are lifted and you're just soaring, right? But the first scene is so difficult. And that's the thing that, stopped, that Sondheim kept tooling in, in Washington was to try to figure out the tone of that first scene. Mm -hmm. And I just think the, the inciting incident is so odd with iodine being tossed mm -hmm. into um, his girlfriend's eyes that it's just really hard to embrace as a, as a theater maker, you know, mm -hmm. interpreter to try to understand the power of that incident. And you always have to kind of bring it into a more, more contemporary dangerous situation. It's, when you think about it, what did Frank do that was so terrible? It wasn't all that terrible. He wanted to be successful. And yeah, he hurt some people along the way. But uh, you know, ultimately, what's the morality? What's the tale? So, I, th I think what you're saying is, is very interesting. And I think it's sort of the, the fatal flaw of the show is that um, you know, when I was a kid, I used to think, oh, he's, he should have written the great American whatever. And, you know, and, and the older I got, it's just like, leave him alone. It's just, let him do what he wants to do. You know, how he wrote dare scores. Yeah, it wasn't so bad, you know. And, and you know, the, the criticism of the play was, right, so it's a show about a guy who's rich and successful. He's got a gorgeous mistress. He's got a beautiful wife. He's, and so what, the pro what is the problem? Yeah. And um, I, I think that... Um, I think that the show is always going to be challenging because yeah. I think shows about writers um, and them not getting to fulfill there is not a problem that most audiences care about or understand. It's not, it's not an emotional problem that people can relate to. And I think that with him, with it being about a writer not fulfilling his destiny, um, I, I think that that's always going to be a shackle. Um, I mean, I've been asked to direct it once in a while and I can't solve that. Mm. I can't. I can't tell you why that's important and why an audience should relate to that yeah. and feel something for that because I'm not sure it is that important. Um, and so you're talking about the iodine. And originally she fell in a pool. We had a pool, right? A paper pool on stage and uh, <laughs> a big laugh. Not what they hoped. Big laugh. Oops, not, not the right laugh. Not what yeah. they hoped. Well, and it's and it's interesting that the iodine is there in the original play. It, well, yeah. they went back to it, but I'm, I'm interested, you know, Chris, what do you think about that idea that relatability of this man's central problem and how, how relatable is it to a general audience? What do you think? Well, uh, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think ultimately that, you know, in this show, life is getting worse. Uh, I mean, and I think the backward structure of the show, not unlike Harold Pinter's betrayal, which says very much the same thing, it sort of says ultimately that as we live longer, our friendships become less pure. And in fact, you know, what I think so, what they do quite brilliantly in Merrily is they, they inf you know, they link the profession, if you like, with, the, with, with life and with relationships specifically. You know, there's that line where Franklin says to Charlie, uh, you know, why can't it be like it was? And he says, you know, you and me, we were nicer then. And it's sort of predicated on this idea that many of us can relate to, I think, that we're nicer when we're young and we have everything ahead of us and we don't have that bitterness and we treat our partners better when we're young. And that as we age and we become, you know, more and more complacent and more and more embittered in some cases, then life becomes harder and it becomes harder 
you know, in the profession as well. I, I guess I see the show a bit as sort of two different things, I suppose. So I had some experiences with the great Mr. Sondheim where I was at a dinner with him once. This is a very memorable story for me. I was at the Tribune. We gave him our, you know, one of our many great literary awards once. And he was sitting at a table. I was at the, as were a bunch of people I like to call Tribune suits who were all sitting there. And Mr. S had had a few drinks and he was getting some pretty stupid questions and he was parodying the people who were asking the questions. And I like to think I was smart enough to see that, but uh, the tribute suits were not. And it was just that kind of, um, you know, that experience that artists have to deal with when they achieve fame, they still have to deal with the economic mechanisms of the theater. That is to say, they still have to talk to backers. They still have to deal with critics. They still have got producers on their, you know, on their case. And it's just, they're not, a, the theater does not allow um, pure creation. It, it sullies, it, and to some degree, this is what makes it so great. But it, there's definitely, I think, Mr. Sondheim had developed by this point plenty of sort of frustration with all of those people that you have to deal with to put on a good show. And I think he poured a lot of that into Merrily We Roll Along. It's there, you know, it's, it's a sort of a meditation on how stuff grinds you down that, you know, the artist uh, starts out pure and young and idealistic. And by the end of it, there's been so much sort of bullshit that the artist has to deal with that the artists themselves become solid by that bullshit, if you like. And then they find themselves looking back on their youth as this kind of, you know, perfect ideal, idealized time. And I think that when anyone in the creative professions then has a personal relationship, that it's a sort of a metaphor that the show makes, you know, extending that to just what it's like to maintain relationships. And I guess, Lonnie, to your point, you know, I think that's the universal in the show, maybe, that the idea of our work and our love affairs and our marriages and how we maintain what we are at the beginning when we are nicer. <laughs> and I think to some degree, that's where in the best productions for me, the show can kind of go beyond that sort of the indulgence that you are, I think, quite rightly identify. Here's to us, who's like us, to It strikes me as interesting, and I've never really, I mean, to, to your point, Chris, that if the, if the concern, and I think Lonnie's concern is, is true, that maybe audiences don't identify with the artist, that 
to follow up with Sunday in the park with George, as opposed to going in a very different direction to go, we're not going to talk about artists. We're going to talk about businessmen because the audience will identify with businessmen that he went dug even deeper. And, and of course, you know, the top of act two is just pounding you over the head with this particular theme of, of art and commerce and dealing with the suits, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's a never-ending quest, isn't it? It is. Level? And it, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's, it is a show, Merrily is a show that's cynical about love. I mean, I guess my thesis on one of my theses, <laughs> what is, sounds pretentious, but one of my thoughts is, you know, only in Bounds, actually, does, does the great Mr. S get less cynical about love. <laughs> I think, I think Bounds, Bounds is about, in his, you know, his, sort of his last show uh, is about, so far, is about the possibility of love late in life. In some ways, it's like the, it's the, it's the inverse of Merrily, which is about, as you get older, love gets harder. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know what you think about that, Lonnie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about it because um, uh, I guess relationships get more get more complicated. I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about, um, you know, uh, Charlie's relationship with Mary, which is pretty, maintains pretty well through the 25 years. Uh, Charlie's relationship with his wife, he's still married to his wife's kids. Um, uh, that, um, I, I don't know. And I, I think that, uh, you know, Steve always says that it's about friendship and that, and that the, the trials and tribulations of friendships enduring over people changing you know, over people's uh, growth and uh, maturation over the years. Um, but I've never thought of it in terms of love, Chris. And that's an, it's just kind of an interesting thing for me to think about. I guess I, I wonder what um, Frank's capability for love is anyway. Um, I think also when we're young, we assume everybody's like us. You know, the three of them, the triumvirate, think, oh, we're all kind of the same, you know, starting out and opening doors and all of that. And as it turns out, one of us isn't the same. One of us has yeah. ambitions that are much stronger in some ways and um, is willing to do anything to get what he wants. Um, and uh, that's not, and, and he has different needs. You know, he wants, and again, I don't actually, at the, my age, not have any judgment about it. He mm -hmm. wants to be rich. He wants to be successful. He wants the house in Bel Air. He wants to be a movie producer. Great. I think that's just fine. It's the um, the friends who are not able to accept his change in life. But yeah. I'm wondering if he changed at all. I'm wondering if that just wasn't who he was, but they didn't see it. Yeah. Because they're projecting. He's kind of the golden boy at the, you know, yeah. we, d we did a lot of table work because we were at arena stage and we actually had like six weeks of rehearsal. That was a long time ago. We don't get that anymore. Hmm. But we read, we read and sang through the show backwards, meaning chronologically in the right order it doesn't work that way at all because it doesn't have it doesn't build you know rise and fall in the same places when you talk about depressing talk about really depressing so um and it was frustrating uh, you know honestly halfway through i was like let's stop this it doesn't you know it's, i don't know what we're learning mm. um but uh i feel like especially as a woman and relating to mary and I just so many times during the process just want to shake her and say, just move on. 
-hmm. you know? So I think what you're saying, Lonnie, is the, the, their trials and tribulations seem somewhat trivial in the grand storytelling need of, you know, living, you know, through other people's imaginary lives. It just seems kind of get on with your life, Mary, already. You know what I mean? It's like, he's in love with this other woman, like move on. You know, I just sort of get stuck on that. See, but to me, but to me, that's human. To no, me, it is very that, human, that, that, but it's that's relatable. Yeah. It's relatable yeah. of a woman who can't give up give up the love, as opposed to I didn't write the I, I didn't turn into George Gershwin. Um, right. Initially, the, what was bandied about was he was um, he was Marvin Hamlish, and that he uh, at the time I think Helen Steve thought his potential was large, and that he by and large didn't. Maybe, you know, he was doing a lot of concertizing and he was becoming a celebrity. If you remember mm. in the 70s, Marvin was like on talk shows and, right. you know, he was doing the show business thing. And, um, and I, I think it was, it was, at least to me, it felt like it was about um, what a shame that this man is not fulfilling his destiny of this great artist. But, you know, the little I knew of Marvin, he loved being a celebrity. He oh, yeah. loved being in yeah. front of people. And, you know, he wanted to be a star. So um, I think it's also interesting to look at both of them who got their dream, I mean, very easily in a lot of ways. You know, Steve had a couple of hard years, nonetheless living quite well and, you know, big hits. And, you know, you can't say, you know, the royalties from West Side and Gypsy. He did quite well, even though the music wasn't, you know, accepted. But then fairly soon it was. And because um, when I was interviewing them for the movie, it's, um, they didn't, they, they're, um, there wasn't a lot of roadblocks in their way in that, that most people have. You know what I mean? And I think that um, them feeling like they their choice was, I think, easier than other people's choices to stay true to their goals and their dreams. You know, I think the bills were paid and that made it less, it didn't, making a living and the, was they weren't poisoned, their art wasn't poisoned by some very stark realities a lot of us have to deal with. Yeah. So to look at Marvin or to look at someone else and say they didn't stay true to their dreams, I don't know. I'm just speculating. Yeah. Here. Is, it's also Firth too. I mean, Firth was a big yeah. part, is a huge part, and and Steve very loyal to George. Insanely so. And wouldn't change a word George, if George yeah. wasn't there and George wasn't gonna, you know, sanction it. Nothing would get changed. And and I I think and correct me if I'm wrong, Lonnie. I think he might have been even tried to get lured away from George. Like if it was in the hands of a different book writer, because he worked with Lapine on it. After George had died. Yeah, but it was, but Lapine directed the production before it came to Arena, before we got the rights to do it so, at Arena. You mean he, did he let Lapine work on it? I oh, think he let Lapine work on the book yeah. in, uh, in San Diego at yeah. Old Globe. Right. And then we got it and kept fiddling with it, you know, Doug as the dramaturg slash director. Right. And what we did was put the, put the rooftop scene at the front. So uh -huh. they started on the roof at, rather than in the high school graduation, and then it bookended back to the rooftop scene. So there were some good things, and Gussie 
being a musical comedy star came back in, which I think was changed in, like you said originally, Michael, lots of tooling, lots of fiddling with the book and the structure. And Your point, though, with Mary, I think, which is interesting in, in this journey of writers coming in and going out, um, Mary was quite clearly in the Kaufman and Hart play based on Dorothy Parker, yes. who, who was, you know, she was just such a desperate drunk and, and, and was such a dark creative mind that it, you do look at it and, and it, it calls to mind to go, if there had been a female writer on this project, might they have done better by Mary, as opposed to just basically translating the Dorothy Parker character of the original play to, well, now it's beginning in 1957 as opposed to 1919. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's interesting that the way that the women are dealt with um, leave them with this dimension. But again, it might have to do also just with the lens of going, we're really looking at this through Frank's. I think that has a lot to do with it, but I, and I also think that if I had, you know, if I could play with it a little bit now, it definitely would have to be seen through a more modern lens. And both Beth and Mary need some work in terms of being more fully realized. I think Mary, just for my money, just is a kvetch. And after a while, I'm like, I just get annoyed with her. Beth has her moment. Right. I mean, I, I got to listen to Marin Maisie sing Not a Day Goes By uh, every night, and that was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And she had the power and, you know, authority to take that journey and arc that song. still somehow part of my life and you won't go away so there's And one of the most challenging requests for an actor to be introduced in that scene, in the divorce scene, and deliver that song before we know anything really about who the character is. We too re rehearsed in reverse when we, when we did it. And for that particular character, I think it helps for the actor yeah. to, to see themselves grow into that moment. 
Yeah. Um, no, it asks a lot of the audience to go on that journey for her to meet her in that moment. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why I think what Chris was saying about seeing Jesse Mueller in the show, it's kind of like it's a it's an acting tour de force, whoever you cast in these roles, mm -hmm. thankfully built on the iconic uh, portrayals by the original cast. But to get those people that have that kind of DNA relationship mm -hmm. would only make the show more thrilling. So to have a group of friends actually get together and do it. I, I didn't see the one recently at the roundabout. Did you see that one, Lonnie? I the, did. The, did you see it, Chris? Yeah, I did, yeah. Did you um, see I it? don't know what you thought, but I, I thought a lot of it was kind of swell. I, I really, I, I liked cutting the chorus and I thought, um, you know, I thought seeing it through their eyes, I thought was interesting. I mean, in, interestingly on the, uh, the the chorus aspect of it is those people all had roles originally. You know, they were they were character actors playing roles that went through the show and that when they got into previews, they thought, oh, there's too many people to focus on. It's the three of them and then, you know, Gussie and uh, Joe. And they made them kind of a singing, dancing chorus, which was not what they were hired for. Yeah. And so um, they all, uh, they didn't succeed too well, some of them, because that just wasn't, they were actors. Uh, but anyway, um, I, I actually liked very much a lot of what the Roundabout show did, and I thought it helped Beth a little bit. And um, anyway, I just, I certainly didn't miss the, um, the ensemble. So they do it with like seven or eight people all together yeah. and, the, and a yeah. little boy. And they did the, uh, it was, I don't remember if there was a little boy, but they did all of the, uh, the, the Merrily We Roll Along um, song that's interstitial. And um, I thought that that was, um, I thought that was right. I thought that yeah. was an interesting idea personally. Chris, what did you think of it? I know a lot of people would, did not like it at all, but I don't know what your thoughts I know I liked it too. I, I think that it, it caught, you know, one of the things about, you know, in the title it says, Merrily We Roll Along, which sort of implies, I mean, I think merrily is ironic, obviously, but yeah. the rolling along part is a reality. Yeah. Um, and it's that idea that, you know, life, it, I, I, always, I always like in musicals the idea of life in motion, and you can't stop change, right? So it's not like any of the characters, and I think this, this production you're talking about, Lonnie, actually did catch this pretty well. None of the characters have the freedom to remain the way they are. None of us stay mm -hmm. young. None of, none, of us, none of us are able to stop the wheels, you know, the wheels turning in life. And I think that that's a crucial part of this show, the idea that you, that, that you can't help change. And that really, it's not about... And I think the weaker productions I've seen haven't understood this. It's not just about um, can you, um, you, you know, how are you, how are you going to avoid turning into something you're not? You are going to turn into something anyway. Mm -hmm. So it, you have to see it in the context of motion that the characters actually can't help. Yeah. It, it's like they're on a treadmill, as we all are. And that's the kind of the, you know, the existential part of it that I think is really important. You know, I was listening to it. I remember when I interviewed Sondheim, uh, him talking about his, you know, his idea that the, you know, in terms of form, that the, um, that everyone here, the songs are all that sort of 32 bar sort of form of the era. And, and he was about, well, you know, you've got, my, my challenge was to see how to flesh out these characters who were using, I think he said, stultifying song structures that the idea uh -huh. that it belonged in an era you know sort of like in gypsy michael you know there's singing the score is is of its 
thematic piece, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, even though he's using this simple form, they're these devastating songs, like emotionally devastating. And any other composer would have parodied them. Yeah. You know, they, they would have been a parody of that era. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't. <laughs> he sort of lives the era, you know, in, a, in an incredible marriage of like form, musical form, and, you know, just feeling. And, and I just think that's a, one of the most amazing aspects of this show. It's like no kid doing this show feels that they're being condescended to. No. You know, <laughs> it's no, harder no, to no, do no. than you think, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was the roundabout p- done as a period piece? Was oh, I, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, it was. And they put scenes from the play back in. So, oh. uh, which um, I think gives you know, Beth and her family. Uh, uh-huh. and you got an idea of who she was a lot more if she was a mm-hmm. bit of a climber and uh, that she wanted money and it was like, you know, stop, stop doing all this arty farty stuff. Go make oh. a living. You have a kid. And so it was it, it really grounded things. It, the score didn't reflect it, but mm-hmm. the scenes did. And I thought that was very um, I thought it was very compelling. Compelling. It was, mm-hmm. to my money, the most successful version of it that I've seen. And I don't see a lot of them, granted, but I, I, I thought... Yeah, it so I would imagine you're invited a lot. It's just, it's too much... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I ran and I was doing the production at NYU um, with the senior class of CAP 21, and I ran into Steve. And I said, guess what I'm doing? <laughs> he was like horrified. I go, don't you want to come? And he said, uh-uh. <laughs> no, thank you. But I think it's interesting to note that the show, even though you know they've gone away from the kids, it does work best in a lot of ways. I think it works work. really well. I mean, no. I would, I would say, I love doing it in colleges because it's a, it's really challenging acting exercises for all the kids to play all those parts, even you know the lawyer and the agent yeah. and and uh, the uh, interviewer and everybody. And uh, I think it's a really great opportunity to, to learn lots of lessons from the show. But I, I have to say, it works. I think it works better. I think the hard part of adults doing it is act two. And I think the hard part of kids doing it is act one. So there's always gonna be uh, challenges, but even college kids in that kind of ferocious energy of wanting to do it, really helps the storytelling, I think. Something that, something that um, Helen Steve talked about, um, and I think it's in the film, some of the footage we found is, is that because the, uh, and I guess the lead in, in particular, because he does such not good stuff, he's, they thought if it was young people, you'd forgive them that they were doing things that were not, that they should know better Mm. And then, um, so, so that it was okay that they were harsher. As you were saying, Chris, you know, people get less nice, right. but that, you, you know, they're, but they're, oh, you'd always remember, oh, that's not them. They're kids. They're just playing this. Right. Um, so it that, also gives you know, it a per, the kids permission to make fun of their folks. That was exactly what they wanted. Is that what you're going to say? Yeah. Exactly. Because and then they... Not, like acting like my parents at this cocktail party. And, exactly. you know. and in fact, the clothes is what initially they wanted was it to look like you were dressed up in your parents' clothes. Yeah. They wanted it to feel like always how it was like, it's not your story. 
Right. It's your parents' story. It's your parents' story. So the idea, which was so meta, is, is mm. that you will be the generation that won't make those mistakes. You will have learned from your parents and you won't make the mistakes they made. And you won't make just the such a beautiful and huge idea that yeah. I think the original production, some did not, was not able to convey, but um, that it's a cautionary tale for kids and that kids might have the chance to learn from it and not be that. Uh, and so the world would be better. So, I mean, it's as they did, even though it's, you can break it apart in many pieces, uh, yeah. it's, it's thrust is so, to me, so beautiful and so big, you know, it's yeah. such a grand idea. Um, yeah. I wish it had come off better, but. Well, it did okay. Ultimately, right? <laughs> it's like still being done all over the place. Well, and and of course, he went back. They they didn't let it go. You know, the, it, for, once the work began in San Diego and the insertion of of uh, growing up, you know, yeah. as they began mm -hmm. and, and removing the the, the top and and uh, and end structure of the of the graduation and all of that. Yeah, they changed rich and famous and put in that Frank. Yeah, right. And Lonnie, yeah. when you know you hear about television shows that that suddenly the cast gets a phone call and oh hey we've been canceled and there wasn't any clear moment to either get together to say goodbye or to mourn the passing of something like that do, do you recall was there did you did you have that kind of closure at the conclusion of the first run were you able or was it because the run was so short and, and clearly a shock and a disappointment. Did you feel that you had a proper closure as a group? Well, I, I'm sure we didn't. I mean, the other thing is it was, go there were two things. Hal was trying to move it off Broadway to uh, what was then the, Ed I don't know if it was called the Eden Theater, then it was on Second Avenue um, and like 15th Street. So there was talk mm. that we would scale it down and move it there. Um, and then that fell through. And then it was going to be filmed for, you know, by uh, RKO Niederlander was had a, a, a VHS thing or whatever. And then we were always like, as we were packing up our judgments, we'll see you next week when we start to film it. And that fell through. Mm -hmm. So I think we kind of thought, oh, well, you know, um, I don't think we thought that the album create, you know, recording the album the day after it closed would be the last time we would actually all be together. Um, Curiously enough, until the the reunion concert twenty years ago, and that seemed to heal, that mm. seemed to heal people in terms of feeling like, and also just because, you know, the show was not well received certainly critically, but also the audience was confused, and so, you know, it wasn't like we got a rousing reception. But then twenty closing years later, night you did closing night you when, did. I well, closing night we might have, but we were crying. <laughs> I don't we were all but, crying too. Yeah. Uh, but um, but uh, but twenty years later, when we did it and people loved it, I think that that was really healing to say, oh, it um, you know, it meant something uh, to people that we. I don't know that we knew that in the you know it was a it was a it was a big disappointment to um, and it was very public. You know, it wasn't yeah. like so right. it was, and you all were really young. <laughs> Still, no, seriously, it's one thing when you, you know, when you're an old dog and it's like, ah, they hated it. 
but when you're just launched, everyone was launched in that show. Unlaunched. David Loud and, and, you and, know, you know, know so by them people. too. It was, that was a big deal. It was just, it was yeah. like, but you're nicer now, right, Lonnie? You're, you're <laughs> I, I, I hope so. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So I, re I remember when we were preparing to do it and you and I talked, Lonnie, and one of the things you have mentioned and, and, and having Chris obviously seen a number of productions and, and, and Marsha having and directed and been associated with productions, you mentioned something to me about you don't know that it can ever work, regardless of the adjustments, the the script changes, the pairing, putting in, taking out, mixing up, reducing the ensemble. Do, do we think that this is what the joy, the pleasure of this show is, is that ultimately it will always somehow disappoint or can it really? I don't know that I would say that now. I don't know I, if I said that then. I don't know that I would say that now. I think why people keep uh, doing it is it's about us. It's about people in the theater. It's about creation, creativity. It's about, it's about us. And so I think that, I know the casts who do, do it are devoted to the show and just think it's like the best show they've ever done. And, yeah. you know, there's something about the material that is, and maybe it's the friendship aspect of it, but um, I think it will always be, people will always want to do it. And, um, I don't know, you know, I, I hope that there's a way to make all of the elements spark each other in, a, in, something, in something more glorious than we've seen of it. Uh, but I have to say, I really did think the roundabout production came as close to that for me, where I thought, it, I, I really thought it worked really beautifully. Everybody merrily, merrily, sing them your song. Look at me, I'm rich and happy. I'm gonna tell you a little story. So one, we, we had some uh, unfortunate situations going on during the production of Merrily, which is sort of like cataclysmic, but our director had a major fall and was in the hospital for like the whole first week of the rehearsals. So I staged all the numbers like in the first week and then Doug came back in a wheelchair and it was very tricky and, tense, let's say. And one day when Doug wasn't there, I seized a moment with Steve. And I just thought, Victor's changing his clothes too much. All he's doing, everything's a quick change. What if he just stayed in his tuxedo? Just keep him in his tux, tell the whole story. So I said to Sondheim, what if we just kept Frank in his tux? And he never changed his clothes. And the whole story was, um, was his life flashing before his eyes. He just found himself in each scene, right? And Steve did this. I'm gonna be a little dramatic for a second. He went like this. And it seemed endless, like I was counting the second. I was like, oh my God, what's happening? And then he lifted his head after like 30 seconds and said, Marsha, that could be one of the most brilliant ideas I've ever heard. Or it's like when Hal said to me, I'm putting them in t-shirts with their names on it. <laughs> And well, I just kind of shriveled and went back to my cave. It was like, 
oh my God, what did I just do? And, but I'll always hold, it might be the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. <laughs> did you do like, it though? I, did you, well, did I did it when I did it at NYU. Later. And I have to say, in all humility, Alex Corey, everybody know who Alex Corey is? Wonderful actress. She was uh, Yenta in the recent revival of Fiddler. She told me I made it work. So Alex Corey thinks I made it work so, <laughs> with students at NYU. But it was one of those, you know, you're in the trenches and we were teching and, oh my God, he kept changing his clothes and I just felt so bad for him. And it was just, I, I just blurted it. I know we are, our time is tight. Uh, so let me throw you a final question. Um, I like to, to wrap it around to if you, if somebody was going to see a production of Marilee We Roll Along, you, and you found this out, you would tell them, here's what you're going to experience. If it's a good production, this is what you're going to about to experience. You've never seen this before. This is what this show is going to leave you with. Growing up, maybe. Mm -hmm. I guess I'd say, uh, I, I would say uh, that you won't be able to get out of it. I, you know, I had this, ex I've had that experience of once I'm there, I just want to see it again. Mm -hmm. and I, I think it, it is, and it, it's, it's just about, um, you know what, I'd point out, you know, I, and I resist doing this usually, but I can't resist it with this show. That is making it applicable to the moment we're all living through, which is how we now know that everything can come crashing down very quickly, more acutely than we did before. And we know that, you know, sort of the, the society we've wrought for ourselves is not ideal. And in terms of a crisis like the one we're facing doesn't work all that well. And that's the show, you know, that they, they find what they built for themselves is not what they thought. And I, I think if you were to see this right now, that's what you would leave the show with. Mm -hmm. That's, that's fast. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, it's, it's a, it's a hard question. Um, I think maybe it's just, uh, you'll think about how did you get here from there? Mm -hmm. You'll think about, you'll think about where you started and where you wound up and, uh, and the cost of that, mm -hmm. uh, and, the and what that costs to, mm -hmm. uh, to look at that mm -hmm. in your life. And, uh, maybe it doesn't cost very much or maybe it costs a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a cost to hold on to your dreams and there's a cost of giving them up. And, uh, I think, uh, you wrestle with that a little bit, you know, you, as Chris says to you, you don't know who you're going to be. Right. Even though you make all the plans in the world, you look back at the age of 50 and go, that's not what I, I don't know if anybody looks back and says, oh, I knew I would be here. I, I, I don't think so. I certainly didn't, which was, um, yeah, anyway. And hopefully that we're all still on the journey and that there's time still to create change. Judy Prince, my wife, said, why don't you do a show about kids? And I thought, you know a play you used to just love was Merrily We Roll Along. And so he suggested to me, and I knew the play, and thought it was a swell idea. This is Steve Sondheim, everybody. Steven Sondheim and Hal Prince, they were like, of course, my idols. They were the gods of Broadway. They were one. There was a casting notice. 
that they were having open calls for a new Sondheim show and they wanted young people. Come on! There were 5,000 people that auditioned, or more, 12,000, I think, maybe. Steve Sondheim, Hal Prince, who else could have been in that room? Christ and Moses, or... <laughs> I mean, the good news is that, uh, is that you're all in the show. I've never been happier rehearsing actors. I've never gone home sure that a show was gonna be a success. I thought, this is just it. I just didn't feel for these characters. Quonks, lurches, and on several occasions, faints dead away. I've never seen rows of people leave. Here was my chance to write about these heroes of mine, and I knew the show would fail. It was a painful piece to write. That was the day before I was fired. It was like we are flying, and then suddenly we crash. What just happened here? It was the hostility that had built up towards Hal and me. And I thought, I got to get out of this. That play was all about those who follow their dreams, those who have just bad breaks, those who have good breaks. And so I would have thought that's the way it's going to work out for all these kids. There's good stuff under there. And it says tryout. This show, if I never do anything again in the rest of my life, I will have had this moment. You know, there's only a few moments in your life that are, are truly transcendent. It was one of the better things that ever happened to me. It's our time, breathe it in. Thank you all so much for sure. joining in for talking about Merrily <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Stay safe. Stay healthy.